do that. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. The glorious king who has promised to you the greatest promise that was ever given to mankind. The greatest prom ever, promise ever given was not given in a marriage. It's not found from a politician. It's not found between the best of friends. It's not even found in the law. The greatest promise is not found in a self-help book. The greatest promise is not found in any book that you can find in the Library of Congress. The greatest promise ever given is found right here in this book. God's Word, the Holy Bible. But can I tell you this? If every Bible in the whole world was destroyed and we only had the one verse we're going to be talking about today, it would be enough to save the whole world if people would just listen and obey. This verse we're going to share today is the good news in a nutshell. It is both the easiest sermon to preach and the hardest sermon to preach. It's easy because anybody can preach John 3, 16, but it's hard because no one could ever give this verse the justice that it's due. One verse today. Does that mean it's going to be a short sermon? No. Amen. John 3, 16. The Word of God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to share that verse with you in a couple of other translations. Listen to this one. God loved the people of the world so much that he gave up his only son. Every person, therefore, who commits himself to Jesus will not be destroyed. Instead, that person will have eternal life. Here's another translation for you. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. Because there's no need for anyone to be destroyed, but by believing in him, anyone can have whole and lasting life. One more translation for you. For so greatly did God love the world that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who trusts in him would not perish but have the life of ages. Friend, I want to tell you this morning, God wants you to live with him eternally. And it's your choice. Today, we're going to ask four questions that I believe this one verse answers. The first question that we're going to ask is, what is the cause of salvation? Why are people saved? The first part of that verse says, For God so loved the world. See, some people think of God as this monster in the sky, that he's just a God of wrath. And you know, we do need to recognize the fact that God is a judge of those who trample the blood of Jesus underfoot. We need to understand that, that if people treat Jesus that way, they're going to feel God's wrath. Amen? That's right. But his wrath only exists 
because he loved his son so much. Let me tell you this. God wants you to know the span of his love. He loved. How long has God loved the world? When did God first begin loving the world? That word loved here, it doesn't mean that he only loves us if we believe that his son saved us. It means that he loved us already. He loved you the day that you were born, no matter what decision you might make through the course of your life. He loved you from the very beginning. And you know, that's a little bit hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to understand that before he saved me, he loved me. He loved me before he saved me. But according to Romans 5.8 that Brother Hal shared, God demonstrated his own love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. He loved me. You know, a mother might say to her filthy child, go wash your face and then I'll love on you some. But that's not what God says. God says, come here, let me love on you. Yeah. Now go wash your face. Amen? Salvation, friend. Being saved is not of any human being. It's not of any church. Salvation is of the Lord, and it doesn't begin with the goodness or the cleanness of any person. Salvation begins in the heart of God. And it's not his desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance and be saved. You know, when Captain Nansen was looking for the North Pole, his ship entered in some deep Arctic waters, and every day, Captain would have his crew to gather up all the rope and let the anchor down to measure the depth of the ocean at that point. One day, he came to the place where the water was exceptionally deep, and he let down the anchor. But the anchor never touched the ground, never touched the bottom of the sea. So he gathered up all the remaining rope, and he tied it on board, or tied it to the rope, and he attached it, and it still never reached the bottom. In his captain log, he noted the depth of the waters. He wrote this. He wrote the exact length of all the rope he gathered together, and then he wrote, deeper than that. Deeper than than that. When you and I think of the depths of God's love, we're reminded that we are sinners, but that the span of God's love goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than our sin. He gathered it all up, but it was deeper than that. You know, many people have sunk into the mire of sin. They've sunk to the depths of depravity, but the span of God's love goes deeper than that. Not only does God want you to know the span of his love, he also wants you to know the size of his love. He didn't just love you, he so loved you. This verse doesn't say God loved, it says God so loved the world. You know, when, when I tell my wife Janet I love you, oh, that means so much. But when I tell her I love you so much, does that not mean more? It does. Same way with God. He loves us so much. You know, someone was telling me, it was Miss Pauline, last Sunday night, 
she showed me what the longest word in the Bible is. It's a name of Isaiah's son, and the name of the uh, fellow's name was Mahershala Hashbaz. Anybody want to repeat that? <laughs> Mahershala Hashbaz. The biggest word in the Bible. But, Miss Pauline, I got to tell you, I found the word bigger than that. I found the biggest word in the Bible is so. God so loved the world. What is the cause of salvation? It's something we're never going to understand this side of heaven. God so loved the world. The cause of salvation is the sheer size of God's love for you. Not only does he want you to know the span of his love, the size of his love, but God also wants you to know the scope of his love. For God so loved the the world, the whole world. Now, you know, I can understand how God can love a little child, a little child. Amen? Most of them anyway, right? I can understand how God would love the children of the world. But I have trouble with how God can love sinners. I have trouble with how God can love those who have outright spoken against him. I have trouble with those who rebel against God at every hand. I have trouble with those who turn their back on God and reject Him every opportunity they get. But can you imagine how those first disciples felt? Think of this. The command that Jesus gave to them was, Go therefore and tell people about the gospel. In other words, he said, I want you to go. Go and be witnesses to all that you've seen, all the ways that I've done, all the things you've seen me do. I want you to go, share the good news, and get this. By the way, I want you to start in Jerusalem. Now, if you didn't know it, Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified on a cross like that. So he tells his disciples, I want you to go, share the good news, and I want you to start in Jerusalem. Can you imagine what the boys did? I bet you those boys said, what? What? Lord, don't you know that that's the place where they crucified you? Don't you know that that's the place where they tortured you? Where they beat you? Don't you know that? And now you want us to go witness there? Uh, I don't think so. But in his command, this is what Jesus was telling them. Go to the ones who jammed that crown of thorns into my brow and tell them I love them. Jesus said, boys, go to those Roman guards who drove spikes into my hands and feet and tell them I love them. Go to that soldier who whipped me, who beat me, who tortured me, and tell him, I love you. Go to that whole crowd that witnessed me being crucified. Go to that crowd who cursed me and tell them all, I love you. 
Friend, that's how God's love works. God's love doesn't hold any grudges. He's always ready for you to come back and receive his love. His love it seeks the lost. It doesn't matter what condition you're in. Your goodness or your cleanness has nothing to do with how much God loves you. But then I asked another question that this verse answers. What is the cost of salvation? What did it cost to save me? Well, we know that, that our salvation cost God a great sacrifice. That he gave. That's what a sacrifice is. Is when we give. When God gave us bodies, he took the dirt of the earth. But when he purchased our salvation, it took the spilling of Jesus' blood. Amen? Salvation, friend, is indeed free, but it was not cheap. It took a very great sacrifice. One of my favorite books I've ever read of the few, amen, uh, is a book called The Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. And in it, he tells about a group of men who landed in this secluded bay in Alaska for some salmon fishing. They uh, landed in there in a pontoon-type aircraft, but when they returned to the seaplane, it had floated aground because the tide went out. But when they finally got back in it and the, the tide had come back in, the, the, the plane took off and got a couple of feet off the, off the water. And then before long, it crashed right back down into the sea. Somehow, when it went aground, uh, the rocks had punctured the pontoons and they filled it with water. So there was too much weight for the seaplane to take off. So the plane began to sink, and the three men and one of them's 12-year-old son both prayed, and then they jumped into the icy waters. Trying to swim ashore, two men made it. And then they looked back out into that bay, and they noticed that there were still two out there. That 12-year-old son and his daddy. Now, his daddy was a great swimmer. But the son couldn't make it. And so the father wrapped his arms around his 12-year-old son. And the other two on shore watched as the two drifted out to sea to their certain death. Friend, that's a great sacrifice. But that sacrifice ain't nothing compared to the sacrifice God made to purchase your salvation. Our salvation certainly cost God a great sacrifice, but it also cost God his son, his only begotten son. How many of you know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Amen? God's pretty rich, amen? He's filthy rich, amen? He owns them all. He owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills, but he didn't give those cattle for your salvation. How many of you know that in heaven, the streets are made of gold? How many of you know that? Amen? But you know what? God didn't give the gold in heaven for your salvation. What did he give? His only son. You know, so many actors and actresses these days are filthy, rich millionaires. And those millionaires, they give to charities all the time. But all they do is they give out of their excess. They give to these charities out of their excess. You and I. We may give to charity. We may give to the needs of others because of what's been given to us. But friend, I want you to know this morning that God gave that which was 
dearest to him. He didn't give out of his excess. He gave that which was dearest to him to those people who would give him nothing in return. He gave that that was dearest to him to those who would reject him, who would despise him, who would rebel against him, and who would disobey him. You know, God, in my opinion, is the greatest giver in history and the greatest giver in all eternity. He didn't give things. He gave his only son. The cause of salvation was God's love. The cost of salvation was allowing his only son to step out of the sinless glory of heaven to step into a sinful world only to be tortured, crucified at the hands of sinful people he had come to save. Wow. What a cost indeed. But you know, here's part of the cost that I really can't identify with. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, God placed the sin of all who would believe in him on his bloody, beaten body. Now, I don't know what your past, present, and future sin looks like, but I know what my past, present, and future sin looks like. I can't imagine the burden. I can't imagine the weight the crushing weight of all my sin on that one man's body. Much less all of ours. Much less all of ours. Much less the, the crushing weight of the sin of all mankind. See, that's something I really can't identify with. But I do know this. That my sin... And your sin was so offensive to God the Father that when he placed it on his son, God, his father, had to turn his back because he would not look on the sin of mankind. Turn his back on his son as he suffered in sheer turmoil and pain. Can you imagine what that separation must have felt like? You know what? I can't either. But that's the truth of the matter. Why would Jesus endure that kind of suffering for me? Why would he do it? To show me how much God loves me. Man, he must love me a lot, amen? So we've looked at the cause of salvation. We've looked at the cost of salvation. But we need to know how we can get that salvation. What is the criteria to being saved? I mean, which people are included? Well, the Bible says, whosoever. Whosoever. Imagine a citizen going to court for shoplifting. He gets before the judge, and he begins to say, Judge, whatever you do, don't forget about all the good deeds that I did before the shoplifting. What if that shoplifter gets and says, but judge, don't forget, I'm not as bad as Bill Barlow. What if that shoplifter gets before the judge and he says, now most of the time, 
if justice is going to be done, then somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay, and that someone should be the one who committed the crime. Unless. Unless the law provided another to bear his penalty. Friend, that's exactly what Jesus did for the sinner. He paid the penalty for the price of our crime, for the price of our sins, which people are included. Whosoever, whosoever sinned against God, and of course every single one of us have sinned against God and fallen short of the glory of God. So which people are included? One little girl put it this way. I love the little kids, amen? She said, what's whosoever? You, me, and everybody. Amen? Whosoever. So that's the people that are included. What's the plan that's involved? Well, that verse said, believes in him. It doesn't say that I have to do anything else. It says, whoever believes in him. I love it when God speaks simply to where even this hard head can understand. Whoever believes in him. If you, me, and everybody else believes in him, that means we're obeying God's plan for salvation. I love it the way that M.S. Lockridge said it. Here's how he said it. He said, you don't have to have certain parents just believe. You don't have to solve a puzzle or a riddle. Just believe. You don't have to learn a foreign language. Just believe. You don't have to get somebody to recommend you. Just believe. You don't have to have a bag of gold. Just believe. Just believe in him. You know, so many people Miss out on salvation because it seems too simple. Surely there's got to be something I must do. Surely there's got to be some ritual that I have to participate in. Surely I have to get my life right before God would save me. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. The Bible says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will you say that with me? Whoever believes in him. That's the plan. That's the plan. Hi. <laughs> what is the criteria for salvation? Whosoever believes in him. But finally, as I close this morning, what is the consequence of salvation? What's going to happen if I do or don't? The consequence of salvation, first of all, for the believer, there is a promise of missing hell. None of God's children go to hell. They may just misbehave down here, and yes, they're going to get a whooping. Anybody here had a whooping? We've all had whoopings from the Lord. But listen to this. Those who reject the Son of God 
will face the horrors of hell. I'll tell you a true story. I hate it when preachers say that. Is there any story that I shouldn't tell that's not true? It's a true story, okay? It's not some fabrication. A true story of a young lady who was brought up in church, but she would never believe in what Christ did for her on the cross. Once she got out on her own, she immediately began hanging out with the wild bunch. Amen? Anybody else here besides me hung out with the wild bunch? Y'all are a bunch of storytellers, which y'all. We all hung out with the wild bunch at one time. There was a time when she was hanging out with the wild bunch, living for passing moments, never giving a thought to anything of eternal value. Over and over and over again, her family would plead with her, please turn to Christ while it's still not too late. But she would persistently refuse to believe. Finally, this young girl was overcome with a very serious disease. And the doctors had done all they could do to save this girl's life. And as she lay in her deathbed, still refusing to accept God's gift of eternal life, she awakened suddenly with this look of dread on her face, and she said to her mother, What is Ezekiel 7, verse 8 and 9? What is Ezekiel 7, 8 and 9? She said, I just had this most vivid dream that there was a presence here in the room with me who told me to read Ezekiel 7, 8, 9. Well, the mother couldn't recall the verse, and so she reached for her Bible, and her heart sank as she read this verse to her dying daughter. Now upon you, I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. That poor suffering girl a look of horror on her face, sank back into her pillow, utterly exhausted. And in a few moments, she was in eternity. Friends, I have to tell you this. If you reject the grace of God here today, then you may have to face the judgment of God there tomorrow. The promise of missing hell is made to those who believe in God's Son. But there's one more great promise for the believer. And that is the promise of making heaven. That they should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was lifted up on a cross. He was then lifted up out of the tomb. And then he was lifted up from this earth to sit at the right hand of the Father. I'm thankful that one day Jesus lifted me up. He lifted me up from the miry clay of my sin, wanting me to live a life that lifted him up 
to a dying and lost world. All these teenagers you saw, they weren't performing. They weren't just singing. BYG was declaring to you, lifting up Jesus Christ in hopes that if there's one lost person in this room, that you would believe. Believe and be sure that you're making heaven. He's going to come one day and he's going to lift me up. He's going to lift all the believers up. And then we're going to have everlasting life with him. You know, I read about Billy Graham, one of my heroes in the faith. Billy Graham said on French television, he was responding to a reporter, actually, and that reporter had asked him, Mr. Graham, you have two minutes to prove that God exists. And Billy Graham replied, I can't do that. But I'll tell you what I do know. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, the cause of salvation is that God's love doesn't want you to die in your sin. The cost of salvation is God's love that paid the price for your sin. The condition of salvation is that you believe in him. Him who died for you. And the consequence of salvation is everlasting life with God free from all sin. Today you get a choice to make. You have a choice to make about how this service is going to end. It's going to be your decision. How this service ends. But you will have a decision to make. Today, you can choose eternal life. Or you can reject it. My prayer for you is, is that you choose Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, Lord of love. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave. You sacrificed that which was dearest to you. And Lord, I pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, that you would send your Holy Spirit to do a remarkable work right here, right now. Father, in a room full of this many people, there's no doubt that there is at least one, probably many others, that have never professed their faith and their belief and their trust in the Savior you provide, your Son, Jesus. Lord, it's our prayer today, and it's your prayer enough, that, Lord, they have made a decision for you and end this Easter service in a way that glorifies you the greatest. And that is by somebody being saved. Speak to them as only you can, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen. Second hymn of place turns to
number 176. Let's all stand and sing number 176. Uh -huh. 